Today on episode number 306 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Martha Burtis joins me to discuss agency, learning, and purpose. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stehoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Since June 2019, Martha Burtis has served as the learning and teaching developer at the Open CoLab at Plymouth State University. Prior to that, Martha was the founding director of the Digital Knowledge Center, a peer tutoring organization for students working on digital projects and assignments at the University of Mary Washington. Previously at UMW, she worked in the Division of Teaching and Learning Technologies, helping administer various faculty and student development projects, including the Online Learning Initiative and Domains of One Own. Martha has taught classes in interdisciplinary studies, computer science, American studies, and digital studies, and she helped originate the Open Digital Storytelling Community, DS106. She holds a BA in English from Mary Washington College and an MA in Instructional Technology and Media from Teachers College, Columbia University. Martha, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you so much for having me. It feels great to talk to you. I feel weirdly like I already know you, even though that's, is that possible when you've only read someone's things? (laughs) It's nice to actually match a voice with with your words. It's great to talk to you today. I think that's a weird phenomenon that we live with in our times. I have that feeling a lot where I meet somebody who I've only ever encountered through Twitter, like Mm -hmm. through 280 character tweets. And I feel like they're a friend I've known for years. As I was thinking about all of the work that I've read of yours and just the way that you've inspired me, one word really comes up a lot, and that is agency. And then as I started started traveling down that theme, it really got me thinking about, it really does motivate me as a learner when I have that. And whenever it's sort of stripped away from me, I I can feel myself just either <laughs> getting filled with rage, which, you know, not really helpful in the learning process or or that. And so I started to think back to things I've learned about motivation. And the name Daniel Pink came up in my mind. He wrote a lovely book, which I'll be sharing when we get to the recommendation segment called Drive, The Surprising Science Behind What Motivates Us. And again, as I thought through your work, I thought, well, this is really embedded in so much of what you do. So I'm just going to outline the three things and then I'm going to stop talking so much and then get, get to hear your stories and your experience. But it starts out for him with autonomy being something that the research shows really motivates us. And autonomy would be our desire to be self-directed. And it increases engagement over asking for people to be compliant. And I, again, I know that this really resonates in your work. The second thing that his research says motivates us is mastery. The idea that we want to get better, we want to learn, we want to attain these new skills. And then the third thing is around purpose, the desire to do something that has meaning and is important. 
And that's it. I'm going to stop talking and just, (laughs) I'm I'm teasing you. But let's start out with when you hear me talk about agency or autonomy. I'm curious if you see agency and autonomy as the same thing, or maybe they're distinct in your mind. And then I'd love to hear your example of a part of your work where you really see agency or autonomy coming out. When I think about those two words, when I'm trying to think about like what makes them different, what makes them distinct, my immediate reaction is, oh, I would use those more or less interchangeably. But one of the things that occurs to me, though, as I think about it more, is that very often when we talk about agency, we talk about giving it to people. Mm. And I don't think we do that with autonomy. I think the word autonomy is used much more as a thing that you individually come into or create for yourself or find space for. And I actually think that tension or that difference is interesting and it it points to a really interesting tension in the whole idea of what giving agency is. I tend to use the word agency because it's, uh, I don't know, it's just the word I landed on. But I'm also really mindful and have become increasingly mindful of not talking about it in the terms of giving agency Mm. because I think it actually undermines the whole idea of agency and also autonomy when we think of it as a thing that is given to us by someone else. And I think that some people might might balk at that. I think sometimes it's almost like being given permission Mm -hmm. um, to exercise agency. And I think there's, it's really true that there are people for whom, for whatever reason, in their own educational experiences, their own life experiences, they've never felt like they had that kind of permission to take control of their own learning, to take control of their own livelihood in the ways that we find so empowering. So I, I think it's a tension. I don't think it's a clear thing, whether it's wholly bad to talk about giving agency But the way I tend to talk about it more is making space for people to find their agency, as opposed to it being a thing that I have to give to students. And even if they want me to give give them that, right, like they want the permission to become autonomous and become self-directed learners, I really try and challenge that a little bit that my permission is irrelevant. But what I can do in, in the places where I teach, in the spaces where I teach, is make space for them to come into that on their own. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And one of the ways I know you in your career have done that, not just for your students, but for students around the world, is through what is called domain of one's own. Would you speak about that for someone who's not heard of it before? Sure. So domain of one's own is a project that originated at my previous institution, the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, Virginia. It's a long and storied history. It grew out of uh, a couple of different projects that we engaged in at UMW dealing with open source web hosting, first for the members of our staff in the Division of Teaching and Learning Technologies, and then exploring how that spread out to the larger community via a WordPress multi-site installation called UMW Blogs. And throughout that trajectory, there were these key moments where my colleagues and I would have conversations saying, wouldn't it be incredible, though, if we could give every student their own hosted web space, like what we had been given and what had really altered our trajectory, our professional trajectory, and helped us to kind of rethink our work. Wouldn't it be incredible if we could provide that to our students, to our faculty, and and to our staff? It took a long time to get to a place where we could actually do that. I want to say the original conversations about it started at Mary Washington around 2006, and we actually launched the pilot of it in 2013. 
So that's, you know, seven years of sort of stewing with the idea, talking about it. There were technical challenges, there were cultural challenges. Uh, there were lots of reasons why I don't think we were ready for it until we actually did it. But in 2013, we launched the project. And now um, what that means is that at, at UMW, any faculty, student or staff can claim their own domain name. So any a url.com.org.net. And then they're given a piece of an open source web server where they can build basically whatever they want at that domain name within the bounds of what's possible on a, on a LAMP server. It's been a hugely popular project at Mary Washington. It's used in lots of different ways, which I'm happy to talk about there. But it's also been kind of adopted and absorbed and recreated at institutions all over the world now, including the institution where I work now, which is Plymouth State University in Plymouth, New Hampshire, where I started last year. And what's, what I've always really loved in talking to other institutions about their domains projects is that at every institution, there's a slightly different inflection. There's, there's reasons why it's different. Sometimes those are institutional reasons, uh, budgetary reasons, but it's also inflected by the people, right? It's inflected by the people at the institution who are stewarding it and who are bringing it into the conversation and their particular lens that they see it through. Um, so it's really wonderful to talk to people about their domains projects at other schools and be like, oh, well, this really isn't just one thing. It's lots of different imaginations of what it can be. At Mary Washington, which is where obviously I've had the most experience kind of witnessing this unfold, it was kind of an interesting project because we kind of knew what it is, what it was we wanted it to be when we started it. But every year, every like six to 12 months, I'd be like, oh, wow, it's not what I thought at all. <laughs> oh, it's something completely different. And so my thinking about it, even as somebody who'd been like stewing with it for seven years before we launched it, my thinking about it evolved and emerged over time as we were doing it. And it really became a space where students could and, had, and was imagined as a space where students could fully explore their own digital identity outside of the confines of corporate or commercial web or app-based internet and, and web tools, social media tools, social media apps. And so it became a, an opportunity for them to do that. But it also became a project that created space for conversations about why we shouldn't only live in corporate and commercial spaces on the internet and on the web. And then it became lots of other things. <laughs> you know, it became a publishing space that faculty have students work in, publishing projects, students building their own online portfolios for self-directed reasons or as part of a course project, graduating seniors pulling all of their work together because they now need to get a job and they're thinking about how do I present myself to future employers or grad schools and lots of things in between. So yeah, it's a project that's very near and dear to my heart, obviously. I appreciate you saying, and even though I think I knew those dates, I, I recently, it hasn't gotten published yet, but I wrote a, a chapter for a book that will come out for instructional designers. And so I wrote a little bit about domain of one's own. And so so these dates didn't surprise me, but I guess just in the context, I get insecure often thinking that other people or other institutions, they they were able to move so much faster than it feels like I can, you know what I mean? Or it feels like my institution does. And, and so I love hearing that you wrestled with it for a while. And then another thing that I think of is Robin DeRosa last time she was on, and I didn't look up what the date was, but I think it's probably been at least a year by now. She was even mentioning her thinking continuing to evolve such that she really relishes in the public spaces and has seen and she's taken the critical lens toward the LMS and how things are locked in there and not very open, but yet 
has started to offer that opportunity that if you want to stay locked in the LMS. So it kind of reminds me of where we started this conversation about giving agency to people. Mm-hmm. I think if we're to take our own assumptions about the limitations of a learning management system and say, okay, everybody should play in this little playground out here, then we're not really giving them agency, are we? Absolutely. And the reality is that I've seen the same sins committed, so to speak, in open online spaces as I've seen committed in the LMS. So yes, the space to a certain degree provides a framework and a context that hopefully orients us in particular ways. But ultimately, the will of whoever is is working in that space is what's realized. And I've also seen some really radical things happen within the confines of an LMS. So I'm not an LMS person. Like, that's not my shtick. (laughs) I have a lot of reasons why I balk at learning management systems, which we don't need to go into. But I don't feel like my fight in this world or in this field is smash the LMS. I feel like I'm much more interested in focusing on those spaces that I do find provide different orientation and giving people an opportunity to explore them and do what they need to with them, whatever that is. You know, when we first started exploring the possibility of domain of one's own, it was before we had a formal project, but we taught a couple classes, including our digital storytelling class, where students would get their own web space. So they'd have to, instead of purchasing a book, they'd purchase, you know, six months of web hosting. And um, at the end, there was this tension about, well, okay, now the class is over, what happens to that space? And I remember being in conversations with people about, well, we have to figure out how to get them migrated. Like, well, let's figure out how we migrate all of that content they made onto our free multi-site blog platform so that it doesn't get lost. And then I really had this realization at that point where I was like, we can't do that. Like, you can't call something your space, a domain of one's own, you have autonomy, you have agency, but here are the ways in which we expect you to use it and the ways in which we expect you to keep it. And I always say, like, if I teach a class and where there's a requirement for a student to sign up for a domain and explore a domain, and at the end of the class, they say, I don't want this anymore, I don't weep over that. Because I would weep over it if I said, hey, I can give you this domain. They're like, I don't want that, without even knowing what it was. But if they've used it and they've explored and they've decided this isn't really my thing for whatever reason, that's their choice to make. And maybe that really isn't their thing right then. But I hopefully, through the experience of exploration and trying, they've learned something that they take with them about what's possible that maybe they use in the future in ways that I never see or I can't predict, which frankly is the case with everything we teach, right? We get so focused on these kind of like outcomes and measuring these outcomes and assessing particular things we've decided need to be measured. I do not think I'm alone when I say that the way my college education is realized in my current life was unimaginable to my college professors and not through any failing of theirs, (laughs) but because I'm Martha, like I'm me and what I do with that is completely controlled by the, the trajectory I've taken in my life and the choices I've made and the things that have drawn me in those directions. So I worry sometimes that you know our focus in education is so much on measuring outcomes and proving that we have mass moving on to this mastery topic, proving that we've reached mastery. In my classes, I'm I'm not really interested in what my students have mastered. I'm interested in what my students have learned and their ability to talk to me about what they've learned. Help me distinguish those things. Because I think of mastery as, I don't even know what I think of mastery. The, 
the way that I maybe would first come into this is just that it's you're never done learning, but that you're toward the end. I mean, that that you a master might then be able to teach other people how to do something. So I'm interested in your distinction between mastery and learning. That's that's fascinating. It's a great question. It's not actually something I've really reflected on much until fairly lately because of the conversations I've been in about ungrading and alternative assessment. I actually really hate the word mastery, mm. to be perfectly honest, because to me, it suggests an endpoint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right? It's, it suggests a pinnacle. Are there things in my life that I've mastered? Sure. I'm sure there are things that you could say I've mastered because I was able to get 100 on a test proving that I knew that knowledge or was able to synthesize that information in particular ways. Am I still a master of them? I'm really not. Mm-hmm. Like The things that I've mastered, if I really was trying to describe what I would hope somebody think I've mastered, um, are much more about a way of thinking and a way of challenging myself and thinking through ideas and coming up with solutions that I don't think is really measurable. And I feel like when we talk about mastery, we're almost always talking about it in the context of a a body of knowledge that we can demonstrate, as you said, we can demonstrate that we are now masters of it and could go teach it to somebody else. I mean, partly, I'll be perfectly honest, some of it has to do with the kinds of courses I've been lucky enough to teach, Mm -hmm. which tend not to be content curriculum, content-based curriculum. They tend to be much more developmental in helping students learn how to think and learn how to learn. And so in those courses, mastery is meaningless. I wouldn't even know what it was I was measuring if I was trying to label it with mastery. But when I have my students do self-evaluations in those courses, I ask them to tell me what they've learned, right? Like, where did you start and where did you get to? And where is this pointing to you in, in your future? That to me is fascinating. Those are the stories I love to hear from students. If they came back to me and they said, well, I feel like I really mastered this topic and here's the evidence why, I'd be like, that's great, but now what? And how did you get there? Like, what's the story of the in-between? I'm always more interested in that. It reminds me of when we're teaching digital storytelling. I sometimes say to students, so when we teach digital storytelling, the way we teach it, and I'm talking about through the DS106 experience for those of your audience who don't know, this is a digital storytelling community that grew out of a class at Mary Washington that I've taught a couple of times. And so when we teach this, we give students these media assignments, and sometimes they're really challenging media assignments that the students choose to take on. And I always say to students, this is a computer, a 100-level computer science class that fulfills a general education requirement. These are not design students. These aren't media students. These aren't film students. Um, they're not programmers, photographers. They're just students taking a gen ed. And so they'll take on these really big challenges. And I'll say to them, I don't care about your final product, which doesn't mean I don't care about your final. Of course I care. Like I love when they make great things and I love watching and seeing the great things they do. But every week they're asked to do a metacognitive reflection upon like how they did the work of the week. That's what I'm interested in. And I'll even say to them, if you have a vision in your head about how you would achieve this video assignment, If you had all the skills, right, if you had the time to master all the skills necessary, if you can describe that vision to me and the things you would need to learn in order that you think you would need to learn in order to enact that vision, that's what I want to know about, right? Because if you know that, like if you can begin to identify that and articulate that, you can learn the skills, like you can do the rest. If you never actually succeed at that final product or final project, that's not really the point to me. 
And as you said earlier, you very well might. It just might be 10, 20 years from now Absolutely. and you'll never hear about it. But or I mean, of course, that vision could evolve as well. But but yeah, who would decide that that should happen in eight weeks, 12 weeks, 15 weeks, however long you're. And that's the part that makes me crazy, right? Yeah. About mastery is this notion that that our learning has a calendar, right? That our learning has a calendar and is divvied up in credit chunks and seat time. If we were going to buy into mastery, which I know that you don't, but or or maybe competency is the mm-hmm. word that I might use in some cases. Would you speak to grading not really being a way of fulfilling measuring mastery or competency anyway? Would you talk about the ways in which grading can or cannot achieve the goals we typically ascribe to it? Yeah. So, yeah, as I as I had alluded to for the last so for the last five years in the classes that I've taught, I don't do traditional assessment. I do what many refer to as ungrading or alternative assessment. I think that. Again, part of the reason that that works for me is because I have the luxury of teaching classes that are just really, really a good fit for metacognition and reflection. But that said, I sort of balk at the notion that this can't be done across disciplines. You know, there's fantastic examples of faculty who are doing this in, in STEM fields, in math, in humanities fields and social sciences, it can be done. But I think what it it requires is a shift in terms of what you think of as mastery or as competency. And it reminds me a little bit of a conversation that I was in here at PSU. We have an event right before the January semester where faculty come together to work on various things, faculty and staff. And this year, we ran one day of it as an unconference. And somebody wanted to do a session on ungrading. And so I went and I sat in on that session. And we really got, we got into this whole conversation about mastery and about testing. And it was, it was really being pushed in particular by faculty who teach in really content-heavy classes, classes like kinesiology, classes with heavy expectations of what a student will know when they finish the course because they're going to have to go on and take other courses that build upon it or because they have to take certification exams or because they're going to go work in the field and they have to know these things in order to be successful. But one of the things that came out in talking about this is this notion that students get tested on bodies of knowledge throughout the semester. And so a student comes in, they take that first test and they fail it, right? And what's their response to that? Well, for some students, they'll see that as a challenge and they'll be like, oh, I need to rethink how I study, rethink how I'm preparing. I need to talk to my professor. Obviously, there's a, there's a misfit. For other students, their reaction to that is going to immediately be, I'm not good enough. I can't do this. I'm not capable. And if you talk to students about these kinds of issues, you will quickly realize how many of them have absorbed that lesson because of the way that grades have been inflicted upon them for their entire education. There's so much grade trauma out there among our students that we don't really realize. And so we we think we're just grading an exam. That grade is a language we are now speaking with students. And what we think we're saying is not necessarily what they're hearing. So we started talking about this notion of like, well, what if instead of seeing that exam as, okay, you have to master this, and then we're going to the next unit, and you have to master that, you have to go to the next unit. What if the content is obviously building, but students can at any point can come back and redemonstrate and retry? And I think a lot of us balk at that. We're like, 
well, no, that we covered that. It's done. We've moved on. I can't just have students continue to be. I'm like, but why? <laughs> like, if mastery is what matters, if competency is what matters, and you want to get them to a certain place by the end of the semester, why wouldn't you let them just continue to try until they get it right? You know, there's so many things in my life that I have had to try and try and try at until I finally figured it out. I don't know it less because of all those tries. Actually, there's a really good chance I know it better because of all those failures and misstarts and having to go back and rethink. You know, it's kind of an aphorism, but we really do learn a whole lot more from our failures than from our successes. So I wish we could just shift our mindset a little in those classes and rethink the opportunities we give students to demonstrate what they know and the way we talk to them about what it means when you can't yet demonstrate that. But that is not a failure. That means that you just are, you're somewhere else in this journey. You know, you're on a journey, you're on a path, you're not quite at this place yet, but that doesn't mean you're not going to get there. It means you need to spend a little bit more time here. But I think our courses don't really make space for that. And I want to say this with complete, you know, a complete acknowledgement of the pressure faculty are under, right? For lots of reasons, which we don't need to go into all of those, but the pressure they're under to cover content, to do it all within a short amount of time of teaching more credits with more service hours, more research expectations, that this is not a problem of an individual professor or an individual program. This is an institutional, this is a cultural problem within higher education that I think requires a cultural shift and a cultural mind shift in the way we think about the work we do and how we talk about it with students and what we tell students colleges for. And that's a big job. It's easy to get overwhelmed. And I mean, I think we should get overwhelmed. I think that what you're describing, both in terms of agency and also in, in terms of rethinking what grades do or do not do, it should unsettle us and it should make us feel overwhelmed. As you said, it goes beyond us. It's a much larger system and it's been present in our students' lives for much longer than we will probably ever know them, most likely. I mean, it depends on how old we are and how long we stay in touch with our students. But, but so that's a whole system's mindset. But sometimes when you have a problem so big, it's pretty easy. And, and it is human nature to just go, okay, then, then I can't do anything. Do you have ideas around, can we dip our toe into rethinking grading while we're not really ready, or perhaps we don't feel safe enough that our institution is really ready? Can we get started without going whole force in an entire class, for example? Absolutely. And so that's one of the things that I think is really important about ungrading. A lot of times when I talk to faculty about ungrading, they get completely, they feel really overwhelmed because they feel like they have to go from something. And, and I want to point out something else that you said, you're talking about how our students have been enculturated by this, but we have too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we haven't just been enculturated by it. We've been so enculturated by it that we were like, I want to go become a teacher. Yeah. So part of it is also unpacking our own relationship with this. And more often than not, the people who end up teaching in higher education are people who actually got good grades, right? Grading worked for us in some way. That's not the case for most people, and research shows that. So doing that unpacking, I think, is really important. Having conversations about our own history with grades, why we feel like we have to, to grade the way that we do, assess the way that we do. I think that taking time to do that matters. But when it comes to absorbing this practice into our own teaching, this doesn't have to be, I'm going to go from 
totally traditional assessment to radical ungrading in a semester in all 12 to 15 credits that I teach. And it shouldn't be. I would actually, if somebody came to me with that goal, I'd say, stop, take a breath, and let's think about how we iterate into this, how we ease into this. So I think that's part of it. There's lots of um, approaches, for example, just building self-evaluation into a class as a way to just begin to play with what does it look like when I have students do self-evaluation. One really important point about that is our students probably have some kind of past relationship with self-evaluation that's bad because there's lots of bad self-evaluation practices out there where students are asked to do self-evaluation and it just goes nowhere. It means nothing What I'm interested in is what I would call critical self-evaluation, where we really think about what kind of questions do we need to ask? How do we need to ask them? How do we need to, what conversations do we need to be having with students up until when we ask them to do self-evaluations so that they're prepared to do that in a meaningful way? How do we follow up with those afterwards so they know that what they've said has gone somewhere, right? That we're reading it and we're using it in our planning for the rest of the course, in our planning for that student. So just playing with self-evaluation is an example. Another example that people do is what they'll call grade-free zones, where they'll just take a couple weeks out of the class, where they'll do kind of an ungraded project or assignment, maybe an assignment that where the grade is entirely based on self-evaluation, for example. So those are all opportunities. But to get at the other point I think that you have, which is a really good one, which is that we are just small people right? We're just small people with good intentions sitting where we sit at big institutions with big problems. How do we affect any kind of meaningful change? I don't think we should ever underestimate the power that one faculty member, one teacher can have on one student. I think all of us probably can tell stories of that teacher we had who changed our life in some meaningful and important way. So one of the things that I like to remind people is that Let's say you do one grading in your class and it works for you and you're great and you're comfortable with it, but you know your students are not going to encounter that anywhere else in their higher education experience. That doesn't mean that they're not getting something out of this, right? If you are doing ungrading well, you're also talking to them about what this all means, about what grades are, what they're not, what they show, what they don't, why institutions have them, right? why they should pay attention to them and not pay attention to them, and how they can prepare themselves to develop intrinsic motivation and find intrinsic motivation and find purpose in classes where maybe that isn't baked into the pedagogy. It isn't baked into the way somebody is teaching. And then the thing I wanted to reference, it's a tweet that I retweeted a few weeks ago by Rissa Sorensen Unru where she was talking, I love this, because she was talking about, I think it was a class where she wasn't able to do alternative assessment, but how she still had conversations with students about all of these things Mm. in ways that could be transformative to her relationship with students and their relationships with the class. So for me, ungrading is a way that I live this, right? Like it's one of the ways I choose to sort of enact my philosophy of teaching but if that isn't something you have, you're comfortable doing, you have the luxury of doing, it doesn't mean you can't embrace many of the same values that are a part of this. Even just destigmatizing grades for students mm. can make a huge difference. The last area is purpose. And you already started to bring that into the conversation. It's almost like these things overlap. I know, it's like they're related. <laughs> Somebody should write a book. Yes. Oh, wait. <laughs> oh, wait. I would love to have you share a little bit about your work in interdisciplinary studies and what you've seen its capacity for embracing someone's sense of purpose in their academic yeah. work. So this is like the magical, like when you start a new job and you're like, 
I'm really, I was so excited. I was like, I basically knew what I was going to be doing and I was going to be working with Robin and other amazing people here at PSU. But there was also this piece that was like, oh, the office where I work in, the Open Learning and Teaching Collaborative is the Houses Our Interdisciplinary Studies Program, which Robin was director of for years and which Matt Cheney is now director of. And I knew that I'd play a role in that and that I could teach in that program, but I really didn't know much more about it than that. <laughs> this was like the hidden Easter egg of my job, <laughs> discovering what a magical thing this is. So our, our interdisciplinary studies program, which Matt may have talked to you about, I apologize, I haven't listened to his episode yet. Oh, you're going to have to apologize to him. And he didn't, but, but Robin DeRosa did, we, but I think on both of yeah. our episodes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so students are basically able to create their own program. And I'm teaching intro to interdisciplinary studies this semester. So these are students who are just getting started in the program and who are crafting a custom major out of courses at PSU, stuff they've transferred in, other experiences that they can get credit for. And it's really pretty revelatory. We have students come into this program. I would say there's like two different types, some students who are just kind of super go-getters from day one, like first, second year students who just they're like classic interdisciplinarians. They're just, they want to craft their own education. They've already embraced this idea of having autonomy over their education. And then we have students who come in who are like juniors and seniors and have realized, I don't know if I'm going to graduate. Something hasn't worked out in my, my first or second major, or I've realized I don't actually want to do that. What can I do to salvage, to make something of this that I can take with me? And it is so cool to see those students who were kind of lost and struggling realize that the work that they've done has purpose and that they're the ones who get to decide what that purpose is, right? That it isn't about the institution telling them, putting a stamp on it or handing them a certificate and telling them, this is your purpose. This is why you did all of this work. It's about them looking at that collection of intellectual activity that they've engaged in for the last three to four years and mining from it, finding within it their purpose, and then being able to craft that into something that literally marks them, right? Like it, it is who they are, and it becomes their degree program. It's mm. really so cool. As you're describing it, it saddens me a little bit that we're not asking all of our students to do that, because shouldn't that be part of the learning process, but it's really not. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, there are definitely times when I'm like, we should just throw out majors and everybody should be interdisciplinary studies, which we shouldn't do. But yeah. but it is really remarkable the difference it makes in so many students' lives and how they go from feeling like they were failing to realizing you weren't failing. That just wasn't your thing. Like what you were doing over there wasn't the right fit. You're going to make your fit. The story that Robin told when she was on the show, too, was about a young woman who was studying to become a nurse and then due to medical challenge, wasn't able to proceed. So I would imagine so much of the time you're also dealing with people who are grieving, that loss of a sense of identity. This is who I thought that I was, and I don't know who I am now. Yeah, absolutely. Like we have students for whom they may have come to college thinking, not only is this what I'm going to major in, but because of this major, I know what the rest of my life is going to look like. It's how I've described myself to my family, to my friends. It's right. It's baked into my identity, helping them to understand that this next step on that journey isn't about erasing that past. It's about rewriting that into something new. The other thing, which isn't very surprising really when you think about it, is that, you know, typically the kinds of students who have ended up 
perhaps in this place have other stuff going on in their lives, right? Like the young woman who Robin talked about, which means that we also get students who are vulnerable in particular ways, which for me just heightens the magic of being able to create a program for them where they can be safe. Do you know what I mean? Where we can help them succeed even if there are these other things going on in their life that are really challenging and hard and we can be a support system for them as they navigate that. Yeah. And that that in-between space when we're going through changes in life and it doesn't even necessarily, it's not always bad changes, just any change is going to create a disruption, even if it's a wonderful change. And so helping them navigate that. There's a, I think he's a sociologist. I think that's how we could classify him. He studied career transitions a lot, but all the other kinds of life transitions too. His name is William Bridges. And he wrote a wonderful book called Transitions. And he describes the neutral zone. And that's that in-between space. So I, we think of change well starts with the beginning but he says no changes start with endings and then we go into this neutral zone which all of us have been there you just might not have known a name for it before but just (laughs) that that I'm like I don't know who I am I don't know what that's it's not I'm not to the new yet but I'm also not in the old because that ended and so it also can be exhilarating though I mean that that you can really tap into possibility and maybe I don't know who I am but then how fun to to discover perhaps more of the core of who I was all along but I had extra strappings that I thought I had to take on and kind of a freeness and and a real just ideas coming all the time it it, it can be really exhilarating if if you're able to hang on for the ride (laughs) well and sometimes all that I don't want to say all that it takes because that makes it sound like it's not a big deal but really it's about a mind shift, right? It's about a rethinking of a framework. And if we in the IDS office can provide that for students, right? Can help them make that transition or help them get through that transition so that they don't get stuck there because that's the real danger is that you just get stuck in that middle place. But if we can help them realize that this is not about an ending of everything. This is about moving through that transition into the new thing. Mm-hmm. That's going to be even better because it's going to be yours. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. Well, this yeah. is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And I have two. One is I would recommend that people pick up the book I was talking about throughout the episode. That's Drive the Surprising Science Behind What Motivates Us. And that was Daniel Pink. I'll, of course, be linking to that as always in the show notes. And then the company RSA Animate did a wonderful animated hand-drawn type drawing of his talk on that. I think it's about 11 minutes. And it's wonderful for two reasons. One is it gives a great overview of Drive without needing to read the entire book. If, you, if you're not up for that quite yet, it gives a great overview. But it's also just so fun to see people so magnificent at visual expression and visual thinking. And it, it really, it, they're just masters at it. RSA Animate has done all kinds of animations for different talks, but Daniel Pink's is one of my favorites. So those are my recommendations and I'll pass it over to you now. All right. I was going to do two, but I actually thought of a third one. You got so it. That's okay. Well, mine was um, quick, so I can pass you my extra time. <laughs> so so the first two that I'm going to share are about, because this kind of grows out of some of what we've been talking about, particularly in terms of helping young people find purpose and autonomy. And so one of which is a project done by a former student of mine at the University of Mary Washington. She was in my digital storytelling class. She also worked as a tutor for me in the Digital Knowledge Center. And the last year that I was there, she participated in a program that I oversaw called Domain Fellows, 
the idea of domain fellows was I had really started to feel like a lot of students just were thinking of domain of one's own as a classroom tool. And I wanted them to realize that it wasn't, that it was bigger than that, and that they needed to be able to explore this for their own personal reasons to find intrinsic value in terms of working with their domains. And so I put out a call and had applications, and I think I had like eight or nine students who were awarded small stipends, and we'd meet every two weeks, and then they would pick a project to work on. So this student, Katie Hartraft, um, was one of my students, and she decided she really loved digital storytelling. So she decided she was going to make her own website and do her own little digital stories. And she was going to get ideas from her social networks on Instagram and Twitter, have people give her ideas of stories she could tell. And the last project that she did is probably maybe my favorite project I've ever had a student do, partly because it speaks to me. But it is, if you know the podcast, Welcome to Night Vale, which is a long running podcast. It's a little bit obscure. Not well, it's pretty popular, but it's weird. It's a really weird podcast. It has a particular style. It takes place in a small southwestern town, I think in Arizona or New Mexico. And there's just bizarre stuff that's always happening there. And it's told through a radio broadcaster who's reporting the news of Night Vale, but the stuff that's happening is just completely crazy. Mm. So Katie was a big fan of Night Vale, and she did a podcast episode called Welcome to Night University Mm. that basically was taking all of that, the Night Vale storytelling technique, but telling a story about a university. And it is, I love it so much. It's irreverent and it's funny and it's so spot on in terms of its tribute Mm -hmm. to Welcome to Night Vale. And it was just so cool to see a student do this. This had like, she didn't get any credit for this. She didn't get a grade for this. She Mm -hmm. spent so much time on it. And it's just a brilliant little piece that she did. The other one, this is a little bit more near and dear to my heart. And I apologize because there's nepotism in this. But (laughs) I have an 11-year-old son His name is Graham, and he has developed a huge interest in video and animation and has basically self-taught himself how to do basic animation and and video editing and audio editing. I play no role in this other than I sometimes buy him licenses for software (laughs) because he doesn't let me teach him anything. Mm -hmm. Like He just gets frustrated if I try to teach him. So it's all completely self-motivated, self-taught invariably every few weeks he throws his arms up and says, this is impossible. I give up. I'm never going to make another animation. And then like three hours later, he comes back and he says, you know, I think I know how I'm going to solve that problem. Mm. He goes off and he thinks about it. He comes up with solutions. So he has a YouTube channel where he releases these little animations that he makes. And selfishly, I am going to share that with your audience (laughs) because I love it so much. I think they're humorous and funny, but it's also just, such a wonderful example of what can happen when you give young people just space to play and explore and and kind of get out of their way. And then the last thing that I'm going to share, and I don't quite have the link for this yet, but I will get it to you, is in preparation for some ungrading stuff we've been doing in the collab. We did a workshop last fall. We did a webinar this February for the state system. Last fall, I put out a call on Twitter asking people to share their own experiences with assessment and alternative assessment and grading and ungrading. And I got a ton of responses on Twitter and I edited this into a collection of tweets. And then one of our student workers, who's a graphic design student, illustrated the whole thing. Mm. And so it's called Ungrading a Chapbook. So it's kind of a small format, chapbook format. 
and we are almost ready to release it. We're going to have a digital copy that anybody can look at or download and print. And then we're going to actually do a small run of printed copies of it. Jesse Stommel is the one who gave me the advice to do this project. I was talking to him about wanting to create a resource. And he said, you know, Martha, there's lots of places people can go online to find tools and articles and research. What people can't find, what's hard to find is community. It's hard to find stories and it's hard to find the real voices and lived experiences of people grappling with this. And he was so right. So huge thanks to him for that inspiration. And it's really come together into what I think is a lovely resource. At the end, we do actually have a link to a page with lots of practical resources, which is also great. But this is really about forefronting people's experiences and realizing that that's actually what matters here. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to try to do it, that's what will be the richest. That's Yeah. Yeah. Because otherwise you get lost in the, well, this is how other people do it. But feeling that mindset shift where you think I can't do this to like, oh, maybe I could do this. Exactly. And we were very deliberate in the tab book to include everybody's Twitter handle. So there's lots of great people in there to just follow too. Martha, it's been such a lovely opportunity to get to talk to you in person. And I actually get to see you right now. And it's just been an absolute joy to follow your work. And I know I'm going to keep learning from you. And I'm so happy to be able to introduce you to the teaching and higher ed community, or many of them already know you. So I shouldn't say introduce you to welcome you, I guess, into the... I'm fine if I'm just being introduced. I'm just happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Martha Burtis, thank you once again for coming and being a guest on Teaching in Higher Ed. You've been such an inspiration to me and so many other Teaching in Higher Ed listeners for many years now. Thank you for your time, your expertise, for the benefits of us getting to hear what you have been reflecting on recently in your teaching and your leadership. And thanks to all of you for listening. It is hard to believe that this podcast started back in June of 2014 and all the amazing people like Martha who've come on and shared their experiences with us. I really do find such meaning and significance in being in community with you. And if you would like to get the show notes in your inbox without having to remember to check them, please head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe and you'll get the weekly or weekly or so email that will give you those updates. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.